Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Well, we're glad to have you back with us for another conversation on the Common Ground Unity Podcast. We're excited to have our guest with us today. Tyler McKenzie is with us. He is the lead pastor at Northeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And I hope I'm saying that right. Tyler will correct me if I'm wrong. That's one of those cities that uh, you've got to kind of be a native to say it right. But Northeast Christian is one of the great uh, restoration churches in that area. It's also known as the Love the Ville Church. Tyler's known for preaching on the pressing issues of our cultural moment, teaching Bible history and theology in accessible ways, and he has a passion for seeing peace and justice prevail for all people uh, of Louisville. He's co-produced a fun and a funny podcast for elementary kids called The Preacher and the Piano Man, so you'll want to check that out. He writes a column that I always enjoy reading in the Christian Standard, and he shares another love of mine. He volunteers as a Little League baseball coach. Tyler, I spent a lot of years coaching Little League baseball. He has an MDiv in Biblical Studies from Cincinnati Christian University and is currently finishing his doctorate at Wheaton University. He is married to Lindsay, and they have three children. Tyler, Welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, your ministry, your church, your spiritual journey, whatever you'd like to share. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I forgot that that was on my bio about the Preacher and the Piano Man podcast. So we need to have a partnership here. I see a budding partnership between Common Grounds and Preacher and Piano Man. Yeah, y'all need to go, you need to go check it out, okay? You'll, you will laugh, and if you have kids, grandkids, nephews, or nieces, like in elementary school, they will laugh harder. Um, I'm going to do it. We, we can talk I, about I mean, that in a little bit when we get into some of our topics, because I think it, it, it overlaps. So, um, yes, I, well, I, I love uh, the, the mission of this podcast, because I grew up in a restoration movement church, and one of the things that I think we're intentionally horrible at is, like, staying together on things like com- com- institutionalizing anything and so little mini institutions like podcasts like these are, are important um so I, gr- I grew up in a restoration movement church so my dad's a, a preacher his name's bill mckenzie i was actually born i saw this in the standard the other day um i was born and raised for the first five years of my life in according to the standard the oldest active restoration movement church still to date it's in cynthiana kentucky it's called Indian Creek Christian Church. Um, and so my, my dad was the minister, the senior minister there when I was born. Wow, that is and, incredible. Isn't that crazy? And, and when, when I was five, we moved to North Carolina. So that's where I grew up there. So Boy, you, you raising your hands for North Carolina, there. John. Are you North Carolina guy, John? Where, where at? It's hard to get our producer, John, to speak there on the There you podcast. go. I'm in Raleigh. Oh, you're in. Is he a producer? Sorry, John. I yeah, won't ask the producer that's questions. All right. You know, we no we like problem. it, Tyler, when he jumps in sometimes. <laughs> no, I live, okay, live in Fuquay, Verena. <laughs> I played some baseball in Fuquay, Verena. There, I remember that in high school there was a guy there who threw like 96, 97, back when that was good. Now 96, 97 won't even get you a cup of coffee in the majors. Everybody throws 100. <laughs> but um, I remember there was a guy there who, because I played baseball, he threw 96, 97. He was in high school. And we're like, oh, Fuquay, Verena, terrified. Anyway, so yeah, back to the story. Um, you know, I grew up in a preacher's home, grew up in a restoration movement church. I had a wonderful church experience. It seems like it's a rite of passage for millennials or Gen Zers to say everything about their church hurt. My church didn't get everything right, but they, man, they pointed me in the right direction. Um, but when I graduated high school, I did not have interest in ministry. I want to play baseball, be a lawyer, computer science, something like that. So I went to school, played ball um, at a Catholic college. In Charlotte, North Carolina, producer John, who won't speak, um, called Belmont Abbey College. And you can hear it, Belmont Abbey, 
there was a Benedictine monastery on campus. So 30 Benedictine monks lived among the campus. They served the campus. Some of them taught. Some of them did ground. Some of them were in the cafeteria. One guy was a cross-country coach, right? And I'm going to tell you what, these Benedictine monks are serious about Jesus. Some of them are are a little strange, but they are serious about Jesus. And they lived by St. Benedict's 1,500-year-old rule. Um, So it was really an interesting thing to be exposed to coming from a RM background. Um, Played ball there for a couple years. Early on, uh, I played ball there all four years. Early on, I think it was the middle of my freshman year, though, um, I probably hit a spiritual, I'd say my spiritual low point in life. Because I was just making a lot of bad decisions, college boy decisions. And um, and, uh, I can remember I was at a party. I was in my car outside of a party at the UNC Charlotte. And I felt like God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but in the way that he does, you know, and just said, you know, what are you doing, man? Get your act together. So I called my my baseball coach up that uh, the next day, and I told him I quit the team. It's like, I'm going to quit. And uh, baseball is my love, but I quit. I need to go to Bible college or something because God needs to be the first priority in my life. And he did not want me to quit because at the time – um, they had me on a full scholarship and I was batting lead off and playing center field. So he tried to pretend, I hope Kermit hears this. He tried to pretend that it had something to do with caring about my spirituality. At that moment, he carried about, cared about keeping his center fielder. I'm telling you. And so he was like, I got an idea for you. Why don't you start a church service for our baseball team on Sunday mornings? Cause we couldn't come to church, but college baseball schedule is insane. You play over 60 games. Your biggest games are weekend games, Saturdays and Sundays. So we weren't in church. Um, and, uh, and so I said, okay, I'll do that. So I remember my dad, do you remember the shut in communion kits? Absolutely. That, uh, you know, the deacons would take out to widows, widowers in their homes that couldn't make it to church. Uh, my dad gave me one of those for the team with a little vial of grape juice. Cause we're RMers. We don't use wine. So it was grape juice and the chiclet breads. And, um, and I led church service, the first church service, for our team, three people showed up. It was a pitcher and my coach. By the end of that season, we probably had about 10 to 15 guys coming, which was neat. Wow. And so the next year, the girls' basketball team, there were two Christian girls on this team that were serious. Sarah Reese, shout out. I mean, she was serious. She loved the Lord. And they came to me and said, we want you to do this for all of the athletes because there's lots of non-Catholic athletes. And so I said, all right. Um, so I started a Bible study for them, and uh, and we ended up reaching about 40% of the athletes on campus. So it just kind of blew up. Wow. And that's when I felt like God sort of pinned me down and said, um, this is what you're called to do is ministry. So um, it was about halfway through my experience there at, in college, that I, at a Catholic college with Benedictine monks, where I decided to, to go in the ministry. Cincinnati Christian University from there, MDiv, found my wife there. Greatest gift God has ever, ever given me. She does ministry beside me at Northeast and does some really powerful ministry here as well. You should have her on the podcast sometime. And uh, I mean, she's just, she's, she's, she's great. Um, and I ended up at Northeast coming out of Cincinnati because I remember when I was about to graduate, I wanted to be a New Testament professor. I like the nerdy stuff, but my uh, advisor at the time, his name's Tom Thatcher. Uh, he said to me, he goes, don't do that. I'm like, that's what you do. He says, trust me, don't do that. Uh, you need to go, you need to be a preacher, and I know where you need to apply. And he pointed me to Northeast. Now, when he pointed me to Northeast, and I did research on it, I realized it was a decent-sized church. There's a couple thousand people, 2,500 people at the time. And so I'm laughing because I have zero experience in ministry at the time, zero. Like I had gone out while I was at CCU for about 12 months and supply preached at all the churches down the AA highway. You know, like it's just... These are small churches. Great people, by the way. Shout out to Augusta Christian Church and the elder there, Ronald Jett, who would give the announcements every Sunday morning with a chaw in his in his cheek. Amazing. <laughs> but uh, like the, this, this was just an interesting um, an interesting time in my life because I'm applying for this job at this large church where everybody's got a lot of polish, and I just didn't. They asked me for sermon um, audio. I didn't have any. <laughs> They're hiring me for a teaching pastor. I didn't have sermon audio to provide. But somehow, by the grace of God, um, I advanced in the process. It was about a six to nine month process, and they hired me. And, um, and I ended up with 
I was started there in 2012, and in 2016, Bob Cherry, who was the founding pastor there, handed me the baton of leadership, and I became the, the lead pastor at Northeast at a far too young age. It's 29. So um, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, I don't know what else you want to know, but, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. The first three years were great. The last three years have been absolute insanity. If you're a pastor out there, I'm with you, brother, sister. It's been insanity. Um, things are starting to feel a little normal again. So, That's a great story, Tyler. Love that. Yeah, well, I love how like um, how God can show up in any circumstance in a Catholic college through love of baseball. And I'm super excited today to like have this combination of loving the Common Grounds Unity podcast and the mission of it and also to have my pastor as our um, speaker. And and this in the series of Healthy Church, when we were talking about who to have on, I mean, Tyler, I know these last three years have been super hard, but the way that you've leaned into leading and doing things well and also like not having a playbook for some of the things that have happened in our city, I think you've just done such a great job. And and so as we are in this Healthy Church series, Tell the listeners, in your view, what are some important indicators of a healthy church? It's funny that you say no playbook, um, because at Cincinnati Christian, they taught Pandemic 101 <laughs> back when I was there, you know, and it was not laid to rest. I mean, it's just wasn't in the curriculum. We were in the epicenter of all of that, too, with Brianna Taylor. And so I just was like, was. how could this be a more difficult situation for the church in Louisville. It was, so. a, it was a cascading uh, of just effect of events at a global state level and local level that just crushed us all at the same time. Everything from what everybody was experiencing with the pandemic to us with Breonna Taylor's killing in our, in our city happening. And, uh, you know, we had the, the tornadoes in Western Kentucky the floods in Eastern Kentucky. Um, we had the old national bank shooting, um, which was a mass mass shooting, uh, all over the news. Uh, so it just, it was, it was, it was a terrible, terrible just set of circumstances, but you know, I mean, this is what I said to our church over and over. We would never pray for this, but we were made for this, right? Because that's what I, I believe as Christians, we're made to, to step into the darkness because we have the light, right? Or we could just hide it under a bushel. Yes, what, whatever, no. whatever you do. So there you go. There you go. Sunday school so, girl. So I guess that's, that's, that was the, the mindset. So, um, shoot, you, uh, this is the first question. We could talk about it for a long time, but what I am tempted to do when you ask me like the marks of a healthy church is to actually go to the vision targets that we've established for our church. We've established 10, which is terrible leadership, I've been told. If you're going to establish vision targets for your church, there should be three, and they should all start with the same letter. Wow. So, um, But that's not what we did. We did 10. That's too many for people to remember. I don't care. There's more than three things that make a healthy church. So we did 10, and we built these 10 based on what we learned from 2020 to 2022, frankly. Um, there were some things we did really, really well. Uh, where we're like, we have to keep doing that because this is what our cultural moment needs. And there were some things that we weren't doing where we're like, we got to we gotta raise the bar there because this is what our cultural moment needs. By the way, uh, that's healthy church is like a really the, at a theoretical, it's, it's a theoretical uh, conversation as well. The, the definition I've always had that I've taught our staff and that I wrote down very early on in seminary was effective uh, ministry equals... Faithfulness to the truth plus relevance to your community. So there's like the unchanging faithfulness to biblical truth. There's the constantly changing uh, execution of that in your community, like the contextualization of it. If you want to do effective ministry, you got to do both. What John Stott used to say, Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other, that kind of thing. So um, that's kind of what we're thinking. So I'm just going to like... I've got our vision targets right here. I'll just kind of fire through them. If you guys like one of them, tell me to stop because I can preach five sermons on each one of them. I, I think I have. Um, 
So this is the first one. We wanted to have an equipping hub mindset. I think a healthy church going forward will have an equipping hub mindset. The most most churches coming out of the attractional movement of the last 30 years um, aren't equipping hubs. They're entertainment venues, if they're mm-hmm. being honest about how they operate and how they funnel their funds. Some churches really are hospitals for saints. You've heard that saying, uh, uh, sorry, hospital for sinners. Um, yeah. We're a hospital for sinners, not a, a country club for saints. But I don't even like that metaphor perfectly because a hospital is a centralized location where sick people come to get well. What I'd rather our church be is an equipping hub where the like the doctors and nurses come to get trained up and then sent out so we can have a bunch of mobile units all over the city. That's our whole Love the Ville mission and mindset. You see it right there. Unleash love every day, everybody, everywhere. Home, workplace, city, church. Those are the four spheres of people's lives that they live their lives in. So our goal is to send people out, not in. So that's, that's a vision target. Um, our second vision target was we wanted to create a corporate rule of life. Uh, if you guys heard the rule of life language, that comes from my Catholics. So it was very interesting when it got popular the last couple of years and everybody started talking about rule of life because I had to read Benedict's rule of life my freshman year in college. And I mean, talk about a snoozer when you're 19. But now I've come to appreciate it. Um, so a rule of life is just a spiritual formation plan. And we wanted our entire church to have a shared spiritual formation plan. Rhythms and restrictions that help you connect with God and resist popular culture. You should have rhythms and restrictions built into your life to help you connect with God, resist popular culture. So um, our one rhythm that we ask everybody who's a member at Northeast to practice is daily prayerful engagement with scripture. The classic phrase for that would be a quiet time. Um, And there's so much that we could say about that. Uh, the Center for Bible Engagement actually did an amazing study. They, they surveyed like 40,000 people from 8 to 80, and they found this thing called the power of four. If you can get people to engage with Scripture four times a week, doesn't matter how. It can be a sermon. It can, they can listen to an audio Bible, read a book, devotional, doesn't matter. Four times a week, then it dramatically impacts their life. And all those metrics that you want to see that show spiritual health uh, go up and to the right fast. Three times, nothing. Two times, nothing. One time, four times is the... Look it up. Look it up. Google it. Um, So, yeah, that was our rhythm. Daily prayerful engagement. Our restriction was this. We ask everybody who's a member of our church to uh, um, to to restrict the quality and quantity of their screen intake. Because screens are in so many ways the spiritual deformation apparatus that nobody saw coming 10 years ago. Um, see, I told you that this is going to take. Do you guys edit this down? We don't want to. We Just, like what we're yeah, hearing. Okay, okay, so keep going. Yeah. All right. Listen. Okay. <laughs> number three. We wanted every. Hey, I've got my pen in hand. I'm writing some things down. Write it down, man, or stop me at any point yeah. or tell me to move along. Number three. Uh, we want every person in our church to be able to name their pastor and their friends inside the church. Pastor and friends. Um, anonymity is easy in a big church. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, one of the problems with anonymity is complacency and faith. That's why megachurches get the reputation of being shallow. I don't think it's because a lot of them are actually shallow. You meet leaders and some of the staff there. They're really, uh, you know, high caliber people who love Jesus, trying to find a, a follow them hard and put together systems that disciple a lot of people at once. Um, I think they're shallow because they allow for anonymity. And so you have to fight that. Because anonymity leads to complacency, no accountability, so on and so forth. So that's one of our vision targets. Another one is we want to continue to build our Love the Ville reputation, which we can talk about later. But um, we want it said that nobody loves the poor in Louisville like Northeast. When disaster strikes, Northeast is there. There's a pressing need where development systems and structures need to be put in place. Northeast is there supporting um, you know, this is this is compa- this is the most compassionate church we've ever been around. Um, number five is we want to unify churches. You'll like this one. We want people to say that they bring all sorts of churches together, not just the RM churches in Louisville, which there are a handful of them, but but churches uh, outside of our movement. I, I think this is important because we got to maximize our power right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and when we we do stuff with other other churches 
um, from different backgrounds and different cultures we, that, that happens. Um, mm-hmm. We want to be a multi-ethnic con- congregation. That's number six. There's a lot of reasons for that, and we have a specific strategy for that, but I think it's self-explanatory. Uh, we want to invest. This is an interesting one, the way we do this one. We want to invest disproportionately in the, in the next generation, especially the most committed. Now, that's, that's an important phrase for us right there because um, a lot of youth ministries can fall into the trap of going wide rather than deep. And so what ends up happening is you may have that small segment of your youth group who are potential ministers or really potential uh, kingdom or, or God's really doing a work in their life and they don't have a mentor to come alongside of them and launch them. And like these are people that can go out and reach 10,000 more, you know, like of course they're alive. So it's not that we don't want to go wider. Um, we do want to reach the lost in our youth ministry. But we really think that one of the best ways to do youth ministry is to reach some of these on-fire youth, and then and then they do the work for you. Our high school pastor tells everybody five times a day, it's not youth ministry if the youth aren't doing the ministry. So I, and I love that mindset, though. So he hands a lot of leadership off, and that's, that's important to us. Um, number eight, ooh, this is a good one. I think all of them are They're good. All good ones, Tyler. They're ours, but, I, but this one's, this one's u- unique. Um, we want to be a church that creates thoughtful and beautiful expressions of the kingdom for our community. Now, there's several parts to this one. Um, first off, have you, have you guys noticed art gets the attention of people who have written you off in the church? Art does. Like it gets people's, it gets everybody's attention like nothing else can. A good piece of art. I, th- I think the new lost person is not like, you know, how, okay, you know how when we used to depict lost people, it was like the long haired rocker with a tattoo and a drug addiction, you know? That um, was like a pastor now. Long hair tattoos. We got at least two of them like that, okay? Uh, so praise God for what he's, the work he's done in their life. Uh, yeah. I think the new lost person that we really need to start thinking a lot about is what I call the de churched. This is the, uh, you know, the ex-evangelical movement or the deconstructor movement, right? Uh, the people who left the church because uh, they, they found it to be impotent, just like really didn't help them all that much, um, or they experienced some level of church hurt. Um, and I think that one of the best ways to break through with the de-churched is beautiful, thoughtful, compelling art. Um when you create something thoughtful, it undermines their anti-intellectual assumptions about the church immediately. Uh, when you create something beautiful, it has a way of cutting through trauma and reminding them of what the church is possible and the power behind the and the beauty of Jesus behind the church. So um, we work really hard on that. One of the coolest things we did was in 2020 when everything was shut down. Um, our Christmas Eve services are our biggest services of the year. I think in 2019, we had like 11,000 people at our, our Christmas Eve services, which I say that only because I, we were mind blown. We we're like, what? How do we, we can't fit that many people in there. Um, although you can fit about 100 people in a bathroom on our Christmas Eve service. I've seen that. That's crazy. But um, there was a lot of people there. And then in 2020, all of a sudden we couldn't do it. And so our worship arts team came together and they created a 30 minute short film. It's a modern retelling of the Christmas story. It was beautiful. It was so it was beautiful. good, wasn't it? It was. And here's what a lot of churches do. A lot of churches create like lowest common denominator cheesy art, and it's not good. And then it's embarrassing to the church. It, it is. It just feeds the stereotype that people expect, but that was really beautiful. We should put that in the show notes, a link to that. Someone worthy. Absolutely. I'd love to see that. Someone worthy. It was really, really good. So mm-hmm. put it in the show notes. Um yeah. So uh, number nine, we will be a congregation who knows, honors, and reads the Bible. Um, I already told you about the power of four. Um, here's a couple of cool things we've done this year, which um, were unique, I thought. Uh, we did 14 weekends this year that we called Bible study weekends, our weekend services, mm-hmm. where we devoted literally a 60-minute block to just teaching the Bible. And my goal is over the course of five years to do a week on all 66 books so we can build a lot, a lot, a library resource. And basically what we do in that weekend is it's like a 60 minute freshman level 
Bible college, like if I was teaching freshmen an intro to Bible class and I were to do a weekend on first and second Samuel, it's what I taught on first. If I were to do a weekend on, I can't even remember the books I did revelation. I did revelation. This is what I teach in 60 minutes on that. And so there's like one song in communion and then you're out. Our people loved it. Our people loved it because they're hungry to be able to contextualize the Bible and be equipped to read it on their own. That's where Preacher and Piano Man podcast comes in, by the way, is because it's a Bible podcast we created for kids. Myself and another guy on our staff who's the funniest guy I've ever met, um, we tell Bible stories in silly ways for kids and then and write songs. So it's, you, guys, you guys watch it. Last one. The podcast time is probably over. We're not even going to talk about what you wanted to talk about. Um, we, we said we wanted to be a people of an unceasing prayer. And uh, there's a lot to be able to say about that, but I probably don't have to convince your listeners of the power of prayer. So I think that those 10 vision targets came out of a real heart of what we were and weren't uh, doing well. Some of them are very unique to our community. Uh, but what I would encourage pastors out there to do is to think creatively about that and uh, and how to reach their unique communities and not be scared to, to dream big, you know? Mm-hmm. Tyler, in that, um, so for our listeners who might be in a church that has a commitment to some of these things, and maybe thinking about the next question, but how can a member in the church encourage the leadership to take some steps towards these type of 10 things? Like as a, as a pastor, how would you be receptive or how could a how could somebody listening to this podcast who gets really excited about one of these things that aren't happening in their church, how could they approach their leadership in a kind, thoughtful, whatever way, other than asking them to listen to this podcast? But what are some ways that people can approach leadership and push them toward some of these types of things? Okay, that's a good question. So the first thing I would say, and this is probably not a satisfactory answer, but the first thing I would say is uh, not every church is called to the same things. We're called to the same mission, but in terms of contextualizing it and in terms of the specific gifts that God has given your church, some churches are going to do things better than other churches. Um. The Apostle Paul gives this amazing metaphor, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, of the church being the body, and we have different parts, and all the gifts have to come together. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I, part, of, part of the point of that passage, especially 1 Corinthians 12, is, uh, at least from a leadership standpoint, is you have to evaluate the gifts in your body. What are the unique passion points in your body? What are the unique skill sets that you have? You know, like, for example, uh, our church is in a wealthier area in Louisville. And so one of the things I've preached since 2016 is that, um, is that we have to be the most generous church. We have to be a church that's loving and giving to the poor. We have to, because that's a gift of ours. Romans 12, Paul's clear. If you have money, um, you have the gift of generosity. Wait a minute, hold on, it's my money. No, it's not. If you have money, you have the gift of generosity. That's what, like, that's, that's his point. Like, if you're rich, you have the gift of generosity. He says, There's not really any other way around it. So... Uh, you know, that's a unique gift that our church has that not, not every church is in a wealthy area. Mm-hmm. And so they might not be able to pour money out like uh, Northeast can. Um, so the first thing I would say to somebody is that you feel especially called to do something. Uh, maybe you need to evaluate whether or not that is your church's unique calling. Cause God put that leader in place uh, as the, you know, as one of the part of a team probably of, of elders and such uh, to direct the church. And maybe they're directing a church the church in a direction that you you don't feel called to go along with, it's okay. We're we're a unity movement, right? It's okay to find another church and say, Lord bless and keep you. God's called me this direction. Now, let's say though that you do think your church is uniquely equipped to do something that it's not though. Um, I think the best way to figure out um, uh, to fi- to figure out why your church is or isn't doing something is to ask questions rather than to bring answers. So ask your pastor questions of. What, what are our priorities right now? Why are these our, our priorities? I see other churches put these are their, at their, of their priorities. Um, why don't we? I'm really just seeking to understand here, you know? And uh, I think if you do that in a good spirit and you have some credibility in the church as somebody who's served and been engaged, like a pastor's going to hear you, a pastor's going to listen to you. 
Um, The second thing is, if you bring something new to the table, the first thing that goes through your pastor's mind, they're sitting across the table from you and they're hearing, you know, I really feel called to start this particular ministry for the homeless. Um, What they're thinking is, you feel called for me to start it, is what you feel. I've got all this work that I'm going to have to do and my staff is going to have to do because you saw, you listened to a podcast. I don't even like the Common Grounds podcast. I'm not going to listen to it now because now i got more work on my plate, right? That's what your pastor's thinking. Uh, so one of the best ways to do this is to say, by the way, um, I'm willing to help with the leadership in this in whatever way I can. You know, I'm willing to fund this if, if this is something that you, we see is in the vision. Or I'm willing to help stir up volunteer recruitments, you know, or whatever it may be. I'm, I'm willing to take the lead, though. Um, I heard uh, uh, one preacher say this years ago. He used to call it the someone from the church, uh, the someone from the church motto. People would call him all the time and they'd say, hey, we need someone from the church to start, you know, this homeless ministry. And he would always say back to him, you are the someone from the church. And then hang up. No, I'm kidding. He didn't do that. But that's what you want to do. You're, boom, and hang up. Mm-hmm. But that's a good way to actually, you know, to, to let your passion know that you're serious. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm willing to, to help take some ownership of this if, if you feel like this is in the vision. Tyler, do you feel like that in the, like you mentioned the attractional model really had a long life for people to come to the church. What are some challenges in getting the church to see themselves to go out in the community? And then how, as a healthy church, as you start pointing people out, how do you figure out where to point them in the community? The challenges of breaking free from the attractional model is how much I have invested in shoes now. Okay. Like I got to look good up there to attract the people. So I've got these $400. Sh- I'm kidding. Have you guys heard of that account? Preachers and sneakers or whatever it's called. Absolutely. That was a bad joke. Sorry. Okay. Let's keep going. The, <laughs> That's a good joke. The, um, the attractional model is not dead in my opinion. It's not mm-hmm. dead. It's still very viable and relevant. Um, it's just become, uh, in some ways, an expectation. It, hospitality is an expectation of the church, as it should have been all along. What, you're telling me that hospitality ministry was a new thing for the American church 40 years ago? Why? We should have been like the best at that. Uh, Chick-fil-A should be calling us. Uh, but anyways, you know, like, so are you telling me that we weren't uh, trying to be sensitive to to non-believers in our midst, the lost sheep, we didn't even have to go looking for them. They walked back to the pen, you know, like you, so we weren't ready for, so, um, you know, are you telling me that we were okay with not bringing excellence to our arts and to our homiletics? Is that what you're telling me? Like, come on guys, like we should, we should be doing that. So um, in my opinion, um, you know, it's not dead. It's still very, very important. And so that's why you'll see me bring my very best to the, to the stage when I preach. And I expect the same thing from our artists, expect the same thing. We have a first impressions team. Um, so and, and, I, and we want them to, to be hospitable, um, you know, so that that whole attractional mindset is important. Uh, for us, the major shift was that uh, we just weren't the, the investment in attractional was almost everything that we had. And the investment in outreach is what we call it, Love the Ville, was almost nothing. So when we launched the Love the Ville movement, which is its own story, uh, I had a a few big goals, I had three big goals. One big goal uh, was I wanted to earn for ourselves a reputation as the Love the Ville church in our city. So I wanted people to stop thinking of Northeast Christian Church and stop think, start thinking of Love the Ville Church when they heard our name. From the governor and the mayor to the person down the street to the owner of the Mexican restaurant right there that we hold office at. If you want to get an office space at Northeast, you can get the fireside room, you can get the fishbowl downstairs, or you can get a booth at Limoni Salt. Okay, we'll get you any one of those. But... Like we wanted people in our city to, to associate that with us. So you got to do a lot of stuff to change your reputation. So that was a big goal, uh, which I think we have accomplished. Um, our second big goal was we wanted to give more minis- more money to ministry outside the walls of our church than inside, um, which at that time was we weren't even close. 
Uh, it's pretty cool. I can report that for the first time ever in the history of our church last year, we funneled $200,000 more outside the church than inside the church. Um, which is really, which is really cool. And we still were able to put a lot of money into what's happening in the church because we got to take care of our own. We got to take care of our kids. We got to take care of our, each other. Um, so it wasn't robbing Peter to pay, pay Paul. It was just Peter wasn't getting paid. So we had to just get, we had to raise Peter, we had to fundraise Peter's salary. You know a little bit about, about that if you're on the mission field. Um, and then our, our third big, uh, big goal was we wanted to have as many staff in our outreach ministry as we had in our weekend worship arts. So when I started, we had, uh, I think, six or seven, five, five to seven worship arts staff and zero full-time outreach staff. Um, we had somebody who did that with some of their time and they did other things too. And so now I think this last year, it's because we don't have some positions filled, but I think last year was like seven, six in terms of the staffing there. Um, and when you shift that, when you shift where uh, the money goes, when you shift where your staffing is, and you also, you shift what you want your public witness to be, then uh, the congregation either follows or goes to another church that's called to do something different. And uh, and new people come to replace the old, so don't be scared about losing the old. But uh, that's that's kind of how we I think we made the shift. Uh, did I answer your question? What was your question? I have no idea what your question was. Yeah, no, I think you did. I think you did. I, I love the intentionality, Tyler, of just in everything that you're saying is like looking at what you want your witness in the community to be. Look, looking at how you want to, like all the uh, systemic things or all the infrastructure that's needed for that to happen. Like that's super strategic and really intentional. And I love that about your leadership. And I love that about Northeast. Kevin, I keep, inter like, I see you getting ready to say something and then I just keep on talking. So now I'm going to stop and let you ask something. You but keep on talking. I keep on talking. Kevin, you talk for a while. <laughs> Kevin, talk. Yeah, I, I love it. You you're, you're having a conversation with your pastor. You've witnessed the things he's describing. Absolutely. And so I've enjoyed just being a part of this conversation. I do have a couple of things I want to kind of throw at you. And I don't mean to redirect our conversation uh, do it. away from some of the things we talked about discussing, but I'm so intrigued by much of what you're saying, Tyler. Um, you know, you, we, we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's been a lot of insult heaped upon attractional mm -hmm. Uh, ministry. And uh, you, I think, nailed something there that is important for us to hear that attractional alone is not uh, going to build a great church. You're bringing them to something substantive. And you describe here, you know, these 10 vision targets. I think a lot of uh, ministers are sitting out there, pastors, church leaders listening to this, who have a struggle themselves uh, defining a mission statement, a purpose statement. I talk to, to pastors all the time to say, I'm just, I'm poor at vision. I have a sense of what we need to be doing, but I don't know how to kind of nail that down in a way that communicates it effectively. And, you know, if we uh, we aim at nothing, we hit it every time with amazing accuracy. Can you describe, I think for our listeners and for me, just a little bit of, of how you came to those 10 targets. I, you know, did, did you, uh, you know, did you go up on Mount Sinai for a week or 40 days and come down from on high and say, I've got the vision. Did you get in a room with a bunch of leaders and say, let's, let's really wrestle with scripture, wrestle with our place and come out with something. Could you just describe a little bit of that process? Uh, could, is it fair to ask you to just give a brief synopsis of that? I'm just so intrigued by what you described and and I think it would really help our listeners that struggle with those things. Yes. So I think that uh, first off, um, did you know that the church leadership industry is like over in a billion dollar industry? Shut up. Like the the. I did not know that. No. I'm not in on that ten million. By the way, I'm not. I'm not in on that either. Uh, but. <laughs> Uh, pastors are hungry. I can't remember where I heard that. Someone needs to fact check that. That could have been fake news. All right. But I'm pretty sure I've heard that from several sources before, but I'm not surprised because you see all the leadership conferences and all the books sailing and all, everybody's really, really hungry for the mission or the vision that is going to work right now. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what I have found in my own experience is that um, one, if you try to reproduce somebody else's mission or vision in your context, um, it, it, it may have some success, but it won't be totally successful because you're taking it from their context and putting it into yours and yours is different. So there has to be some element of looking at your community, looking at the felt needs, looking at the gifts in the congregation, looking at the passions that you have, the needs in your city, and also the unchanging commands that Scripture puts on us as leaders and figuring out what, what should happen here. So that's, that's one thing I would say that that's a mistake. The other mistake that I see a lot of folks make is they expect vision to come to them immediately and now, like I, there's... There, had, there were several years, for two or three years through COVID, people were asking me for vision. And I felt a tremendous amount of insecurity as a leader because I'd had no vision. Uh, the vision for us at that point in time were to be, was to be the Love the Ville Church in a city that was hurting. So let's just keep leaning into all these hurting situations and keep doing what we've always done in loving the people. But what's next like, should we move everything completely online? Should we sell that? Like people were doing, talking about all sorts of crazy stuff, right? Um, and uh, and I didn't have any real immediate vision at that time. So I told our, it was it was actually kind of sad. We we and when we when COVID started, we like took all of the goals that we had made for 2020 and ripped them up. And they're like, what are we going to replace them with? And I was like, mm, you know, we just didn't know. Um, so, but what we did was we started, we started evaluating, like, what is it that we should be doing next? You know, and what is it that's actually reaching the people in our city? Like, I think a good leader always has that in the back of their mind. They're always praying about it. They're always talking to elders. They're always looking at other churches. What are they doing? That's, you know, they're looking at their city and they're evaluating it through their own context. And we, uh, I remember making a list over the course of about two years of things that I thought were important. And then, um, um, so that's my Moses on Mount Sinai, if you will. Like a lot of that was just my own thoughts and studies and bouncing and all friends. And then late 2021 is when I brought it to our staff and our eldership. And I was like, hey, here's here's a bunch of things I think we should be doing. Which ones do you guys like? And that helped us widow it down. And uh, and then by the end of 2022, we had our we had our list, and we're ready to launch to the church and and create a five year plan around it in 23. But the reality is, is that that was a crockpot. That wasn't a microwave. You know, like it took a while for us to wrap our our minds around what was right. And Tyler, what you're saying that I think is important is that you looked outside the church as part of that process. You know, not what does the church need. Uh, only like, you know, in isolation, but also what does the community need? What are the felt needs? What are, you know, I mean, it's so much of like, you're right, it's contextual, but if we as believers aren't looking at where the hurt is in our community or where the opportunities are to, to come together, to do something we can't do alone, then we're not going to have this, this, reputation that that you're talking about because we're still going to be looking in yeah so okay let me let me just riff on this for a second because this is something that bothers me um and this is something that affects our our vision targets while we do some of the ones that we do um one of the things that i think we do well is we look at the whole scale of evangelism and discipleship and we try to vision and program around that when I say the whole scale, the best way to, to define that would be, have, have you ever seen the Engel scale of evangelism? Have you ever seen this? The Engel scale of evangelism basically starts off, it's like a scale, maybe 1 to 10, 1 to 15, that shows um, how you move somebody from completely closed off and unknowledgeable about God to like a multiplying, reproducing Christian, right? And so it's like they're closed off to God. Uh, they're open to God. They're aware of the claims about Jesus Christ. They're positively disposed to them. They accept that, you know, or they, they, they accept some as true. They are willing to repent. They get back. Like, it's just like a scale of there's and you, a lot of people have made their the scale different ways. We've made our own adaptation of it. But you can Google Engel scale, E-N-G-L-E, Engel scale of evangelism. Now, now, attractional churches and evangelical churches have always been really, really good at the middle of the scale. 
getting people who are interested and open and excited about God across the conversion line. We've always been very, very good at that. Um, and that, that is because when the attractional model, the chief metrics are butts and baptisms, right? So we really hone in on that. Uh, so what happens is we have these amazing baptism days that are awesome to put on Instagram. And we can say we baptized 738 people this year, but, uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of multiplying disciples. Like our conversion rate to multiplying people is not very good. Our retention rate is not very good. And we're not actually reaching a lot of people who are totally closed off to God. We're just taking a lot of lost sheep from other churches and rebaptizing them. I could give you some numbers, by the way, of some of our baptism weekends. I'm not a proponent of, I'm a proponent of baptism. Somebody's going to clip this out and be like, look at what McKenzie said in Louisville. He doesn't like baptism. He's out of the restoration movement. You can't kick me out. We're not a denomination. So I'm staying in whether you like it, me, like it or not. No, we're a proponent of baptism. Um, we're just not a proponent of the baptism weekends because I remember we, there was one where we did like 200 baptisms and we tried to do follow up with all of them. And I said, I want to see a list. And uh, there was a significant percentage of them that had been baptized before. I want to say close to half that we could track down. Um, a, a, many of them at Northeast. Okay, so there you go. Many of them at Northeast. Because in baptism weekends, it's the Wild West. It's just like, we got hot tubs up front. Come on. You know, and people just come and you're just dunking them, right? And by the by, the 17th baptism, you're just dunking. And so, was that a baby? Oh, no, we don't do that. You know, like, but... Uh, and, and there was only 50, 50 of the 200 we were only able to follow up with and get to take next steps. And so I was like, there, is this just an emotional uh, plea here without any substance to it all? Did we tell them to count the cost? Um, have we put the systems in place to really move people along? So um, I wonder if we'd had access to Southeast baptism records, how many of them had been baptized at Southeast, Tina? You know, like that's what I would wonder. So uh, anyways, we get really good at the middle of the scale, though, in making the emotional conversion appeal, which we should be good at. We just weren't given energy at the bottom or the top. So what strategies are we going to put in place to take closed off people and make them simply open to and positively disposed to the claims of Jesus? Well, for us, part of that is the Love the Ville movement. Because when they see a church leading in a city in justice work, and they see a church unafraid to say social justice is actually an important part of what the work of Jesus is. Uh, we want to renew the city. We want to work for the common good of the city. They go, hmm. Now, I grew up in a church, but they never talked about that, you know. And and so we just actually moved. We didn't move them across the conversion line, so we're not going to be able to post that one on Instagram. But we did move them up from a one to a four or something right there. And that's important evangelistic work. You know, and I could care less. I hope, you know, uh, you know, other side of the city, Christian church baptizes them. That's fine with me. I don't care who baptizes them. I would like to baptize. Actually, I do. I would like to baptize them. But if somebody else baptizes them, fine. You know, same scoreboard. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, like that's, that's the, I, to get back to, to my point on this, I think that's part of, part of the challenge with strategizing is we don't strategize for the bottom of the scale or the top of the scale either, turning people into those, the equipping hub stuff. Uh, multiplying disciples out to go to go do that so that's important stuff yeah i think that can be said for missions in churches as well like everybody wants to do missions in part of the world where people are already open but when you start talking about doing missions with people who are not just closed off, but that are against Christianity. Nobody wants to do that because it's the hard part and it's not, you can't count it the same way. And so I like that um, way of describing that because I think that that can challenge us in lots of parts of our faith, individually and corporately. True that. It's true. Tyler, how do you all find the needs? You, you've got this awareness. I, I, you know, I love the way you described and, and answered what I asked a, a short time ago, you know, knowing your church, knowing the skills and resources there, um, knowing your passions, uh, knowing the community. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you all find the hurts that you hope to heal and that, that ministry is created out of to address? That's a good question. Um, 
you listen to the squeakiest wheels in the church. Whoever complains the most, knows the needs, and you do what they say, and that'll lead to a very healthy church for them. Um, yeah. No. Yes, I've been there. So, uh, so I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little bit of the Love the Ville story. Uh, we're going to celebrate our ten-year anniversary next May. Ten years of Love the Ville. It started in in 2014 um, with uh, one one event. It was one event at, at its genesis. It was a Blitz weekend. We called it. Um, we didn't actually do church on a Sunday morning in the room. Uh, we decided to mobilize 2,000 people off campus to uh, the Clifton community in Louisville, which was where another campus that we had just basically merged with, acquired. They were a dying campus, Christian church, but that, that we wanted to help renew. And, uh, and, uh, and so we merged with them, and we wanted to show the community that we were there to love. And so we sent 2,000 people out there to serve that weekend. Started so the start of Love the Ville. You know what the biggest concern, by the way, for, for leadership was at that time? How are we going to collect the offering? offering? Yeah. How are we going? To, so you know what we did? We actually had everybody come to our main campus, put them on school buses and drove them down there on school buses, which was fun. But we did a communion meditation and we passed an offering bucket on those school buses. You better believe it. Um, <laughs> you had church. So uh, now you don't need to do in the room giving anymore, I guess, because everybody gives online. Uh, but... That you could, that's the one thing you can thank COVID for. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, the way we got the needs for that weekend of serving was uh, three or four weeks beforehand, we we went and we knocked on doors. Old school, baby. Like we went and knocked on the doors of, of businesses and homeowners in the community. Uh, we called the local metro councilmen. And uh, and got and we got his attention when we said we're going to bring two thousand people and and you know thousands of dollars into his community. Um, you know who actually knew the needs in Clifton about as good as anybody was uh, was the the bartender at the local bar at the end of Frankfurt Avenue. When we went and asked him what are the needs in the community, he uh, he listed off like. I remember like six or seven names. You need to go to this person's house because I haven't seen them in a while. This person's struggling. This person needs some construction work done on their house, whatever. And so we compiled a list of of needs through that and were able to meet real needs in that community. Um, And uh, and the moral of the story was, if you want to find the needs of a community, uh, you need to, one, ask, how can we help? I know that sounds really simple, but the way that most churches, especially big churches who are know-it-alls, when you're a big church, you think you know it all, right? We read a book. We even wrote a book on it and did a conference. Okay, well, you may not know it all in that community, though. So um, when you're a big church, your tendency is to go into a community and say, here's what we do, rather than how can we help? Mm. Um, And when you go in and say, here's what we do, like, okay, so I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when we were at the beginning of the Love the Little Movement doing research on different churches that were doing it well, there was a couple churches I really admired. I was talking to one of the churches about uh, the way that they were impacting schools because I felt like we needed to impact the public school system. And they said, well, here's what we do in the schools. We do, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like a mentorship program, a backpack program, and uh, you know, school supplies drive every year. And we got 10 schools that we do it with. Cool. You do the same thing for all 10? Yeah. What if a school doesn't need a school supply drive, though? Um, nope. This is what we do. We do this, this, and this. Um, and, and I just remember thinking, like, well, in my experience with the schools here, they all have very different needs. And the way that we know is we talk to the principals and the FRC, and they tell us the different needs. Now, by the way, most schools need mentors, by the way, so that's pretty pretty common. Um, but, but depending on the population, they When I started coming to Northeast, the thing that I not struggled with, but like the thing that I questioned was I loved the school program, but we also do the school program in a really affluent part of the city. And in my mind, I was like, well, wait a minute, like we should be doing everything in the part of the city that's like resource poor that you know all this stuff and then I started hearing stories about the people who were volunteering in schools all over Louisville that weren't just in poor areas Mm -hmm. 
and listening to the stories of how those kids are coming from homes that have a lot of uh, insecurity relationally or parents that are working a lot or, you know, one parent families. And in my mind, I was like, shame on me. Like I'm equating a need to what their physical need is and not seeing the whole person and, and how like that strategy of working in schools all over our city is so impactful and so important. And so I really appreciate that like really holistic kind of look at things and for churches not to only look at where the like financially poor areas are, but really looking at the needs of families like across the city. So I think that's something that I love about Northeast as well. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, Tina, to your credit, I think that's a good point is, is, and we have, uh, we have spread out our ring of schools around the city uh, as we've moved out. We started small with the schools closest to us because those mm-hmm. are the ones who knew us better, who we had better trust relationships with, more people on the staff, that sort of stuff. And we made our way around. One of the unique things about the Jefferson County public school system, though, which is where we're at, is uh, because of the way they bus children, we get kids in every single school from the city from every single neighborhood. So there's an incredible amount of, of diversity. Like I can show you the picture of my son's first grade class, uh, you know, and it's just, it's incredible. Right. Um, and, and so like you're getting kids from the poorest and the wealthiest communities all in the same uh, classrooms. And that, by the way, that system has created challenges for our city. Um, and mm-hmm. it's also created neat things like that. So like we can actually go, there's a school right here uh, down the street from our church in a neighborhood called Norton Commons, which is a wealthy neighborhood. If you drove through it, the people there will tell you they're not going to shy about it. It's a wealthier neighborhood. Um, the elementary school in it though has kids coming to it from all over the city. So we could go serve in, in Norton Commons and be serving kids that are um, below That's the poverty point. line on free lunch and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and needs, needs some, needs some extra TLC. So um, yeah, but that's what you're saying is, is very, very true. Um, Back to your question, Kevin, I'll say this. You got to ask, how can we help? And then the other part of that is you've got to find visionary leaders. So we only part with, we partner, we partner with, we have 11 intimate partner schools, partner with many more schools than that, but 11 intimate ones and several nonprofit partners in the city. But we will only say yes to a partnership and throw our weight in that direction if we think that they have a visionary leader. And by a visionary leader, it needs to be somebody who we sense knows the needs of the community. Can't be somebody who's lacking in vision. Um, it can't be somebody who, uh, you know, we're, we're like, you know, uh, what, what, what do we need to do to impact the population of your school? And we feel like the answer is vanilla. They need to know. Um, and so our team, our, actually our outreach team has a whole process that they vet leaders for, uh, with. But that's important to get the needs to. But hey, just go ask. Go ask. Yeah. Yep. That's the key. Very helpful. Very practical. Yep. You, you don't learn anything without asking uh-huh. and, and, and getting out into the community and asking those questions. Tyler, this has been a, a great conversation. I hope you'll come back and, and join us again. We've got so much more we'd like to talk about, um, but we've got to kind of bring things to a, a wrap up here. And I, I'd like you to think our, our primary audience we're, we're, a, we're a believer that when Jesus prayed for the unity of believers, he met all believers and that that's his prayer. And we hope to help to uh, be a part of the answer to that prayer through Common Ground Unity. Primarily, our listeners are made up of people in Stone Campbell uh, movement, heritage churches, restoration churches, Christian churches, churches of Christ, international churches of Christ. As you think about your own background in your experience ministering in and just a life in this movement, uh, what would you say to our listeners about how we might better lean into restoring or even better kind of re-envisioning the, the unity plea that was once foundational and at the core of, of our heritage? That's a really good question. Um, can I can I say something that I think we should do and then use that very same thing and say that we shouldn't do it? Can I do that? Um, You go right ahead. Uh, That's what I'm going to do. So I think we need to do a better job at organizing and institution building in our movement. 
Um, I love the fact that we are not a denomination, that we have locally led congregations, which I think make us more nimble and able to actually be more evangelistic in our unique context. If elders are healthy and doing it right, if they got their eyes on the community, then that then that is helpful in that regard. Um, but uh, it's it's very hard for us to organize our efforts and organize uh, all the all the leadership, all the people that we have to point at specific broader problems or even just come together and worship and pray because we're all kind of kind of doing our own, our own thing because we're not good at organizing and institution building. So uh, we, we need to we need to do do a little better job of that, I think. On the flip side though, I think our anti-institutional flavor is one of the most appealing things to the upcoming generation. So like we can't we can't like become a denomination, you know what I'm saying? Like we we need we need a better job of organizing institution building but but we can't go too far because um, Charles Taylor described it like this. He's this Canadian philosopher. He said that uh, that this generation has moved from an age of authority to an age of authenticity. Mm. So in the age of authority, we used to look at external authorities outside of us in order to define who we are. We would allow our parents to do that. That's an external authority. The church to do that. The government to do that. Tradition to do that, right? No more. Now we live in a very anti-institutional, anti-authoritative society where we look at what authentically my heart says or my feelings say, whatever, right? To determine who we are in the direction that that we want to go. That's the shift that we've made in our culture. So people are very untrusting and standoffish when it comes to institutions. I mean, have you seen how many people trust the government right now? It's so many, right? Like this is a perfect example. Uh, add on top of that all the moral failures that are like headlining, um, you know, the newspapers about the the church and podcasts are being created on them and all sorts of stuff. And it's mm-hmm. just uh, it, cre- it, cre- it creates a distrust for the institution. Mm-hmm. So it's like our greatest weakest and our greatest strength at the same time. So mm-hmm. I don't know, like uh, somebody out there figure out a way to organize us better. But somebody out there figure out a way uh, for us to to leverage this anti-institutional flavor to reach the next generation. That's not going to be me. It's going to be John. Appreciate your thoughts on that. But, you know, we, we may include John a panel down the road. We're going to crack that nut and get that figured out. I think that is a great topic (laughs) for a podcast that we, that we could have a panel that then has a next step to it. Cause I think really what you're saying, Tyler resonates with a lot of people that I talk to and a lot of the, um, opportunities I have to interact with different churches in our movement, but also in a more ecumenical way. And I think we have these conversations and we see these things, but we don't know how to move to the next step. So, so get ready for a call about a panel conversation and be thinking about who are some of our thinkers who, who could think about that with us. Hey, uh, Tyler, it has just been such fun to have you and you have shared such good stuff. We, we'd love it if you'd come back. I want to give our listeners some ways that they can tap into uh, other things that you're you're writing and saying. First, um, if, if you go to christianstandard.com, uh, you can find articles there by Tyler McKenzie. Subscribe to the Christian Standard. He's got articles uh, that come out on a regular basis in the Standard, so you'd enjoy uh, reading a lot of his just real practical articles. Also, hear him preach. Go to neckchurch.org. And if you're in the Louisville area, go to uh, Northeast Christian Church and uh, just see what's happening in the life of that uh, congregation. So it has just been a lot of fun to have you with us. And we thank you and we hope you'll return. I hope our listeners remember that this is a ministry of unity and it does focus on the restoration movement, but um, reach out to us. Let us know what topics that you'd like to hear about. Let us know uh, people that you think would be interesting to build up this this uh, idea. And uh, yeah, as we enter into December, my prayer is, is that our listeners will like not be busy, but will be mindful of the reason we have to celebrate. So Oh, no better way to close, Tina. Thanks for that. Join us next couple of weeks. We'll be having another conversation, and we hope you'll be back with us.
Thank you for listening to the Common Ground Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.